Akbar new here this morning, we certainly welcome you. It's great to have you here. We've been on a journey this last three months, each and every Sunday. We've been walking through the book of Second Timothy, thank you. There are a couple of people who remember this book of Second Timothy and of all the people that Paul chooses to write what we think are his final thoughts, Paul writes this letter to this young man by the name of Timothy. You know, you might remember, if you go back to chapter one, because we're in chapter four now, there's only four chapters in this book. You might remember how he starts this book where he writes, dear son, dear son. Now, it's not his biological son. It's not his biological father. There's this relationship that has formed and will continue to form into the future. And so he writes this letter to his dear son. That's how much Timothy means to this great apostle, this great early church leader, Paul. And so the first thing he does is he commends Timothy for what? You might remember in chapter one for his sincere faith. He commends Timothy for his sincere faith because Paul in his travels has seen a lot of masks. Remember week one, we brought out a few masks. And uh, he commends him for this because Timothy is different from those people that uh, Paul has seen in his journey. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy, he says, Timothy, hang on to this. Hang on to this sincere way of life, to this sincere faith that you have, uh, that you have because it will serve you well for the rest of your life, forever in fact. And so Paul, what does he do? He commends Timothy. He commends him. But then he goes on to coach him, from commending to coach him. And uh, coaches do incredible things because um, Paul believed that Timothy was made for more. And so he helps him. He helps him develop certain characteristics and patterns and disciplines within his life because that's what coaches do. Those of us who have a mentor here, which I encourage us in week one, that we are to, uh, to, to pray about a Paul in our life, but also a Timothy in our life, that we're sowing in to the next generation. And so Paul commends him for his sincere faith and he coaches him and he calls out the best in him. And that's what mentors do, don't they? That's what coaches do. They call out the best. The Australian cricket team at the moment, they've got a coach calling out the best within their team and hopefully their best will mean a test victory. Fantastic. All right. (laughs) Well, where is Paul? I don't know if you remember. Does anyone remember where Paul is in this particular time of this writing? Exactly. He's in jail. He's in prison. In fact, uh, it sounds too nice, in fact. Uh, Paul is in a Roman prison cell, which pretty much in brackets means in a hole. He is in a deep hole. Even the worst, in fact, of our prisons today would be like the Hilton in comparison to what Paul is experiencing. Let me just quickly explain. This is a dark, damp dungeon of a hole reached only by a rope or a ladder from a hole in the ground above. There are certainly no windows, there are no lights, no toilet, no furniture, and no running water. And so here's Paul, this great leader of the early church, writing this letter, coming to the end of his life. Do we remember where Timothy is on the receiving end of this letter? Ephesus, very good. He's in Ephesus, which is about 800 miles away. He's about that particular distance away from Timothy. And Paul here is in this hole, this dungeon, this dark, damp environment. And he has Timothy on his mind. And so he begins to write 
to this early church because he believed in Timothy. He believed in Timothy so much that he'd say, Timothy, you were made for so much more in this life. And just like the end of a movie, three months later, here we are as a gathering of people in the book of 2 Timothy, just like the end of a movie, we're going to find out what actually happens to Paul and to Timothy. And this is how he finishes this letter in chapter 4. Check this out. Coach Paul, but you, Timothy, he's referring to, keep your head in the game. <laughs> keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Just press pause there for a moment. I'll continue in a moment. What he's saying that I'm handing over to you the torch to carry. I'm handing over to you to carry this forward, Timothy. For he says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for me, my departure, is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Can you say that with me this morning? I have fought the good fight. Say it with me this morning. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Very good. Now there is in store for me, because of this, because of these three things, which I'll take apart just in a moment. Now there is in store for me, because of these three things, that there is a crown of righteousness for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only to me. He's always thinking of others, Paul. Always thinking of others. Always thinking. Jesus-centered. Others-focused. Always thinking of others. But not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Just think, as Paul was reading through this, what would his reaction be as he was... Re- I, I kind of think of what Paul's reaction would be. He'd probably burst into tears by reading this because he knows the weight and the responsibility. He knows his mentor is going to the next life. He knows his run is coming to an end. But also, he had to carry this torch on into the future the way Paul did. And he's saying, he also has to finish well, the same way that Paul began. Another important note to get our context here, because once again, this dark, dingy dungeon that he finds himself, this cold, dark hell of a hole that he finds himself in, he's enduring these particular circumstances. Now, clearly at rest... But he is confident in the way that he has spent his life. He could say these three particular things. Now, he's not this broken old man coming to the end of his life. I want you to know that. I think the word would say that he's endured so much. And we could read some of his writings in Scripture to prove that. But he's given his life to a cause. And his life has received purpose because of that cause. And he's thinking of others. So what does he do? He confidently declares that I have what? Fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. Very good. Now, I certainly want to point out here this morning, he's certainly not implying at all that he hasn't made any mistakes. And he certainly wouldn't be implying that he hasn't faced discouragement in his life, but he would say that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. And so through it all, what he's saying here is that I've stayed in the race. I have done what God has called me to do. As Danny and Christy stood here this morning, they are doing what they believe what God has called them to do. Is that for everyone? No. They are doing what God has called them to do. Now, Paul would go on. 
in verse 8, and he would say this. Check this out. He would go on and say this. Now there is in store for me this crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to who? To all. To all who have longed for his appearance. Now what Paul is doing here, he's, he's taking us to, the, um, to an athletic metaphor. That of the Olympics. I think we've got the Commonwealth Games coming up next year, right, in, on the Gold Coast. We've got the Commonwealth Games, maybe something like that. Because if you, completed, if you competed in the Olympics and you won, you were given a wreath. You were given a crown. But the truth is, after a few days, the crown withers. A little bit like the flowers that we give our wives regularly, right, husbands? <laughs> All right. <laughs> but what Paul is trying to say to Timothy here, that there is another crown. We've got some arguing going on down there. <laughs> there's another crown. There's another crown. And if you, he would say, if you actually live this your entire life, God will give you this crown that will not wither. This crown is a crown of righteousness that will never, ever wither. Let's go to the setting once again. Let's go there. He's in a hole. He's writing this letter to Timothy. He's looking death into the face, and he tells Timothy, Timothy, first point here this morning, that I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. First point. What is it that you think of this morning when you think of a fight? Often, if you're anything like me, some of the things that come up on our TV screens and news and drunken brawls and things like that, it's not a very good thing to look at, to be a part of, to see. But Paul is saying, I have what? Fought the good fight. Is there anything such as a good fight? Well, Paul would actually say there is. There is such a thing as a good fight. Now, this verse conveys that the Christian life, pardon the pun, is no Sunday school picnic. What it conveys, is he's saying here, is that this is a spiritual battle we're in. This is a fight against the forces of evil. But this is not just any fight, physical fight we're talking about. This is a fight that is good. This is a good fight. This is the, the good news, the good news against that of evil. So I'm asking you here this morning, I think, well, Paul would probably ask us here this morning, are you engaged in the fight? Are you engaged in the good fight? I'm going to go a little step further. I'm going to say, are you engaged in the right fight? Or are you engaged in fights that really don't matter? When you come to the end of your life, you'll be able to look back and say, as Paul said, first point, I have fought the good fight. What's the good fight? It's a good fight against that of evil. It's the spiritual battle. It's the cause, he's saying. It's the cause of Christ on earth. The second thing he would say, second point, I've only got three this morning, is that I fought the good fight, but I've also finished the race. You would have thought he should have said that third. But no, he says it second. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now, of course, what he's referring to here is this spiritual race. And this is a long race. I don't know about you. Sometimes, you know, you think about, well, life is long, but life is short. Isn't life long, but life is short? 
What he's referring to here is the spiritual race that life is long and certainly not a short sprint. Can I ask you a question this morning? Have you ever run a race? When was the last time you ran a race? I'm talking about a physical race. Well, personally speaking, just for a moment, a couple of years ago, I ran, uh, it was 2015, I entered my first Launceston 10-kilometer run, race, whatever you want to call it. And that particular time, that was a long distance for me. I was on annual leave at the particular time, and uh, I was mentioning to Karen, I said, I wouldn't mind going, because on a Sunday, and I'm normally here of a Sunday, but I was on annual leave, and um, I said to Karen, my wife, I said, I'd really like to go and watch this run, and I'd been doing a little bit of running, and uh, not a whole lot, but just a little bit, and she said, you should go in it. And it got me thinking. It encouraged me to kind of think, should I go in it? It's late entry. I only had a couple of days to go. I said, I really want to go and watch it to see what happens first and to go and you know, get an advantage view of, of how they do it, maybe what they wear and all that kind of stuff. And so I was interested to go and have a look. Anyway, she said you should go in it. So with a couple of days noticed, I uh, registered for my first Launceston 10. As I said, I'd been training a little bit, but not certainly 10 kilometers. And for those of us who are runners, you would certainly know the difference between a five-kilometer run and a 10-kilometer run. There's a lot of difference there. It's twice as long, first of all, right? <laughs> and uh, I didn't know a lot about nutrition back in, in terms of for, for runners. And it's important that you eat the right thing leading up to the, that kind of thing. The night before, the morning of, my brother Sean there, you'd certainly know about that. But um, my, the first few kilometers, I felt that I was in the zone. I was set. I, w I had this in the bag, and I was running. But I noticed just a, a few kilometers. I, I, my guess was probably four or five kilometers into this particular run. I noticed people had started to pull out of this run. I started to go internally, what on earth went wrong there? Now, later on, I'd figure out that actually, they actually ran too fast, too quick. They'd mixed up their runs. They weren't used to this longer distance, and they ran too fast, too quick. They mixed up their runs. This was not a sprint, and so they pulled out of the race. And so a couple of kilometers from the finish line, back to my race, my lack of longer distance training started to catch up with me. Now, as a reminder, I'd never run more than five kilometers from this particular, from memory, I couldn't, I couldn't remember running that kind of distance. And so, at the seventh, about the seventh or eighth kilometer mark, my body was asking me a few questions. The first question my body started asking me, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> I don't like you. <laughs> and please stop now. <laughs> And I remember thinking, how do people possibly do this? And I remember going over to, uh, uh, um, up to my wife, Karen, and telling her after the first and the second, because I've done three now, and the third one was completely different to the first one. That's another story for another time. And I remember saying, what do I keep doing this for? I am not a runner. I am not a runner. And uh, it was so hard, and I, I admired those who could really get in there and do what they did for that kind of distance for that amount of time. But with endurance and with determination and the cheers of the crowd, which certainly matter at times, even though they're not cheering for you. <laughs> I wasn't stopping for anyone. I came, not, I came to finish this race, not to stop in during this race like I saw others in this race. And so to this day, I've never been more excited than I was in that moment when I crossed that finish line. I had finished the race. And I guess saying that, I want to ask you the question this morning. Are you still in the race? 
Maybe Paul's asking us that this morning. Are you still in the race? How many of us get into, I'm not certainly saying that a voluntary role in the life of the church is the be-all and end-all. I'm not saying that. But how many of us get into a voluntary role for a season and we're done? We watch from the sidelines and we cheer the crowds on maybe. Because sometimes, yes, I understand that we need to take a break and we need to be refreshed and renewed for certain seasons, but then we need to get back in the race. Get back in the race. And what I'm so proud of about Door of Hope Christian Church, let me explain to new people here this morning. There are still people in their 70s, 80s, and I'm going to say it, even in their 90s, even in their 90s, still serving us for many, many years. And one person came and saw me a couple of weeks ago, and I won't tell you her age, but she'd been serving here for over 30 years. And she came and saw me, she said, Steve, I finished my race. I finished my race. Now, she's still alive and well. In fact, she's here this morning. And over 30 years, we can't figure out exactly how many years, she couldn't figure out herself, exactly how many years it was, but this goes back to Margaret Street days, Frederick, and back over here. And so this morning... I'd really like for us to thank and celebrate Julie Horder for over 30 years of running the race. Thank you, Julie. We honor you. We're thankful for your loyalty, for showing up cheerfully. And uh, we're keeping you and, of course, husband Ken in our prayers at this time. And we celebrate a good and faithful servant. Three cheers for Julie Horder. Hip, hip. Hip, hip. Hip, hip. Thank you. Once again. Back to this. Because what's interesting, when it comes to the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games, we tend to know the names of the sprinters, don't we? Carl Lewis, Ben Johnson, and Usain, he is insane. (laughs) Incredible. But we don't know the names of the marathoners. I think what Paul's trying to get us to something here is something very special if we'd listen to what he's speaking to us about here this morning. Does anyone remember, by the way, a gentleman, I think it was in the early 80s, his name was Cliff Young. You remember that? You remember him running in those farm? But he was a potato farmer, right? You remember? You remember? Yeah, Cliff Young. He was a potato farmer who ran ultra marathons. I'm talking about eight or nine hundred kilometers. He would run from Westfield Parramatta to Westfield Melbourne somewhere, and he would run throughout the night, and he would beat all the other young. And that's how he rose to. Anyway, that's Cliff Young. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? We know the names of the sprinters but we don't know the names of the marathoners. You see, what Paul was more concerned about was people who were steadfast, Julie, people who were consistent, people who showed up, and people who finished the race. Can I ask you this question once again? Are you still in the race? Maybe another question I could add on to that. Are you going to finish the race? Because I think this is what Paul is telling Timothy, to don't just be someone who has a short sprint like those fellas that I saw that day and conked out and they're throwing up and all that kind of stuff. That's another story. But Paul is saying to finish the race. Finish the race. Because in a race, I've learned from this, that there is adrenaline that goes on, especially the night before, and you can hardly sleep. 
Any other runners understand? Anyway, um, but there are trials that also come, and it's important that we endure those trials. Jesus talked about that. Paul talked about that. James talked about that. And because trials that we go through, things that we go through, we endure. In fact, here's a word for some of us here this morning. You need to hear this word, and it's hard to hear sometimes. It's the word growth. Some, some reasons it's hard, isn't it? Can I just be personal just for a moment? I've got to move on. But I'm going through something at the moment, nothing to do with what I do here. I love what I do. I'm going through something at the moment, personally, that is really hard, really hard. I'm okay, by the way. But it, it's causing growth in me that I know it's good for me. It's good for me, but, oh, gee, it's hard. It's, does anyone identify with what I'm talking about? You know, to persevere and to endure, you've got to... You've got to count the cost, I guess, count the cost, and uh, so that you can look back at the end and say what Paul said, and he said, I finished the race because Paul is asking us this morning, will that be you? Because he's certainly saying that I fought the good fight, that I finished the race, and third, the third thing, you remember, remember what the third thing is? I have kept the faith. Third and final thing, and I'm done. Ben, please come, feel free, and I'm done, and it's this. You see, this particular phrase, it's important, the context once again, and the true meaning of the scripture here is this phrase, this is, is an athletic phrase. Because an athlete would say to an Olympic committee that I have kept the faith, that I have trained for at least 10 months, by the way, that I will not cheat and I will not take a shortcut. Now, if they said that, the judge would then say, well, you can be in the Olympics. What Paul means here is this, it should be on the screen that he has carefully guarded the truth, that I have kept the faith. He has carefully guarded the truth about Jesus Christ that God had entrusted to him. His life and his teachings had held to sound doctrine. He'd fought the good fight, he'd finished the race, but he had kept the faith. What's he telling Timothy? Those three things. He's saying that he's lived for a cause, that he's hadn't dropped out of the race and that he's guarded the truth of the gospel, that he kept the faith. But he gets personal. In the last few verses of this letter, he starts to get personal. In verse 9, he says, do your best, he says, Timothy. Do your best to come to me quickly. What's he saying here? He's saying that I want to see you. I want to see you, Timothy. And these next few verses, as you'll read in Scripture, in this chapter 4, he says that it talks about people who deserted him. These are the people who didn't finish well. Those who didn't come and see him. Those who weren't impressed of his situation in prison. And then the book ends. The book ends. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I was reading my study leading up to this day, kind of going, I've got a few questions to ask. The first question, well, what happened to Paul? And then what happened to Timothy? Well, scholars have been asking the same thing for many, many centuries, in fact. But we do know that Paul dies in Rome, and we do know that Timothy goes and sees him, Hebrews chapter 13, 23. Now, scholars believe that Timothy was there to watch Paul's execution, but he finds himself getting imprisoned in Rome whilst he's there, possibly, possibly, even in the same cell that Paul wrote his letter to him, possibly. What happens to Timothy? Well, Timothy eventually is released from prison, 
and he becomes the bishop of Ephesus. And while he's leading this church movement in Ephesus, John, the fourth gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, he shows up. He's on the scene here. And this is where John writes 1, 2, and 3 John and his gospel in Ephesus. And Timothy loses one mentor. And in God's kindness, he provides him another. And I would imagine Timothy and John's friendship would have been incredible. You see, there's another thing we have to understand about the context of the day because there was so much going on. There was so much going on. You see, there were these movements that would rise up and they were building up through the ancient Near East, groups of people who were wearing masks and they had clubs in their hands. They were killing men. They were assaulting women. They were taking and terrorizing this city of Ephesus, this city that Paul, Timothy, had poured his heart and soul and life into. What does Timothy choose to do? Does he run for the hills? Does he get away from there? No, he faces it head on. He walks right up to the city center and he begins to preach. And he begins to proclaim that there is a better way, that there is good news for the world to hear, for the world to see, for the world to be a part of. And he begs for them to stop. Yet these masked men, they pick up their clubs, they take their clubs, and they begin to beat Timothy to his death. And Timothy dies in the city that he loves. And he's being true. He's being true to what Paul had wanted him to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith. Could you imagine? Could you imagine as he ascended into heaven at that partic- those particular moments, coming to the gates, kind of pushing Peter aside, and Paul running towards him and saying, You did it. You did it. You fought the good fight. You finished the race. You kept the faith. You did it. Come on, let's go and get your crown. Let's go and introduce you to Jesus. Let's go and tell everybody, Timothy, you did it. I'm asking you the question this morning as we sit and we contemplate, as we come to this closure of this book, this great book. I want to ask you this question Don't you want your life to end like that? Don't you want to hear those words? Well done. Well done. It's going to take endurance. It's going to take you to perseverance to hear those words. Because I believe this morning as we bring this series to a closure right now, from his dungeon, from this dark hole, Paul would yell up. He would yell yell out and look up. And he would yell out. This aged apostle would cry out to each of us this morning and say, don't give up. Keep going in spite of what you feel. Lead with faith and live with faith. Keep the faith because he would speak over us this morning and say, you were made for so much more. And it's in Jesus' name, here endeth the lesson. Amen and amen. I'd love to pray for us. Please stand as we pray. Please stand. As we bow our heads just for a moment of prayer, just in these last few moments, you see, Paul had Timothy, and Timothy had Paul. There was this mentoring relationship going on. A, a sports team has a coach. I want to ask you this morning again, do you have a Paul? 
Do you have somebody who comes alongside you and believes in you and brings out the best in you, but also on the other side? Are you sowing into the next generation? Are you believing in somebody else, maybe who's a little younger? You may not feel that you have what it takes, but these younger generation are looking to you more than anything else. And I'm thankful. I want to mention these people again as we close our eyes. These people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s in the life of the church here at Door of Hope who have endured so much change and transformation in the life of the church, who have stayed the course and are finishing the race well. I honor you. We honor you. We love you. Paul's coach, Jesus. Do you know him? Have you accepted him? Have you received what he has given to this world? Have you confessed? Yeah, I'm a sinner and I need help. I need hope and I need healing in this life. And right now, as all heads are bowed and all eyes are closed, I want to give this opportunity to come to the healer of all healers and to receive Jesus maybe for the very first time. You've never accepted this mentor of a relationship and you're still figuring it out, but you know that in your heart of hearts that you need to receive the, well, this Christmas gift and maybe receive it now, the November 26, 2017. So if that's you here this morning, would you raise your hand nice and high? And say, yeah, I need to receive what Christ has done for me upon the cross. Thank you. There's already a hand there. Thank you. Is there anyone else here this morning? Thank you. I want to pray for you. I want to pray a prayer of receiving Jesus into your life for the very first time. To say, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. You've given and forgiven me of my past, my present, and I have a future. And it's in you. Is there anyone else here this morning? Just to raise your hand nice and high. I want to include you in this prayer. Father, for the hands that have gone up here this morning, you see their hearts, and that's what really matters. I'm thankful, God, that you're a God of grace, you're a God of love, a God of mercy, and that you come into our hearts. And Lord, you change and transform us. And for these people who have put their hands up here this morning, they receive you anew, they receive you maybe for the very first time here this morning. Would you come and cleanse these hearts, Lord, as they come to you, and seek forgiveness because of the sin that's in their life that needs to be cleansed. Sin has to be dealt with, and it's cleansed by Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks for that here this morning. We celebrate and thank you for all your goodness in people's hearts and people's lives. Father, this morning, my prayer is for all of us that none of us would be sprinters, but we'd see this as a marathon. Maybe with short sprints along the way, but of going deep with Jesus, recognizing just like Paul did with Timothy, to be consistent, to be steadfast, that each of us are made for more, that we'd fight the good fight, that we'd finish the race and we'd keep the faith. And in that, there would be a crown and a well done waiting for each of us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.